0: Good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and today is February 10th, 2014. This is broadcast number 56. As I sit in my home office today, I'm actually doing this interview from the Hill Home Command of Greenville Seminary. Um, I'm waiting, like most people in Greenville, South Carolina, waiting for this impending storm to show up it would be kind of funny if it didn't show up people are closing businesses and schools all around us and there's not a flake in the sky so who knows what's going to happen but anyway we are waiting for another winter storm and as i was commenting to my friends who know that i'm from western new york uh this wouldn't even be news where i'm from two to four inches of snow what's that that's nothing but down here in the south they're not prepared for it and if you're driving it well Okay, hope you have a good car insurance. So that's what's going on in, here in Greenville. Today we have the pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Um, James Anderson. He is um, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Reformed Presbyterian uh, Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we'll be talking with him, uh, introducing, in a, in a sense, uh, what he'll be discussing at the GPTS Spring Theology Conference that will be held beginning on March 11th here in Greenville, South Carolina. We're going to be talking with him about the topic of Calvinism and the origin of sin and some background material and other related items that go along with that. And we'll get to that in just a minute. If you've been living under a rock and you don't know that we do have a website, it is simply confessingourhope.com. There you can find out all information about this podcast, who I am, if you're that interested, and other matters and, and resources related to the podcast when we interview guests and have various topics on. I try to include resources and other items that will help you with that topic or book or whatever it may be. So you visit the website at confessingourhope.com. You can also get our GPTS mobile app. It's free of charge, both for Android and iOS devices. And there you can carry around with you wherever you may be. This podcast, as well as our chapel sermons, theology conferences, and other special lectures that the seminary puts on through the year. So take advantage of that resource. It's free and available even now to download to your mobile device. Everybody's got a mobile device, right? I mean, how do you live in the world today if you don't have a smartphone? Well, anyway, a funny story about that, actually. My father, who wrote off text messaging years ago, uh, sends me a text message the other day. My father is now in the smartphone world. Of course, I won't tell you what kind of phone he got because it would just completely humiliate me, but he is in the smartphone world. So anyway, use your smartphone, get the mobile app, use it. And uh, as I said, it is free of charge for those who are uh, so inclined to get it. As I mentioned, we will be talking with Dr. Anderson, who is an associate professor at RTS in Charlotte this morning. We'll be talking with him about... His conference lecture, the lecture that will be held um, actually Wednesday morning on March 12th. So, Dr. Anderson, it's great to have you on the program. And I know you're busy, I'm busy, everybody's busy, but it, it's an interesting topic Calvinism and the Origin of Sin. And before we get into that topic, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and then we'll move right into some, maybe some background material that's related to this subject?
1: Sure thing. Well, uh... Thanks for, for having me on. Uh, it's good to speak with you. Um, as your listeners will be able to tell immediately, um, I'm not from these parts originally. I'm not indeed from this uh, continent. I'm from uh, Great Britain, uh, raised in, uh, in England and then in Scotland, spent most of my uh, life in Scotland, actually living in, in Edinburgh. Uh, my, my original training was in uh, electronic engineering, and I worked in, mm. I worked in computing for uh, actually um, 13 years. Um, but I felt the Lord was calling me to study um, uh, Christian philosophy, theology, and apologetics. So um, I got my, my degrees while I was uh, working for the University of Edinburgh in the engineering school and uh, ended up with a, a PhD in philosophical theology. Uh, which uh, the Lord used to open up the opportunity for me to come and teach here in Charlotte at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary um, five years ago. So I've been here five years now.
0: Outstanding. Now, I just got to ask as a kind of a joke. You said you got your degree in, in in computing and engineering. Do you have a smartphone? <laughs>
1: Do you know what? I don't. <laughs> I, I unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, I I can't stand the things. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I have I have the cheapest possible uh, mobile phone that you could imagine. I think it was one um, that Noah used on the ark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. You and my father would get along. Well, maybe not now, but um, yeah, he he had the same. He he just wasn't interested and um, but by providence as it so happens <laughs> the su- subject matter of the conference is God's works of providence mm. and uh, but by providence his phone broke it wouldn't work anymore and he went to get a new one and well got sucked into getting an iPhone oh <laughs> no comment so, de- so disturbing <laughs> well it's okay you know people who know me and know that I do this podcast and know me personally know that I have a general Disgust for anything Apple, and um, <laughs> so so my wife has an iPhone and my two daughters have an iPhone. My father has an iPhone. I'm being outnumbered. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Maybe it, I well anyway. Another subject for another day. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting that you now are you, you're originally from Great Britain, and so I, I don't want to make that that horrendous mistake. It, it it appears that I've I've heard from my friends who are from Scotland and never want to be confused as someone from from the UK and the other way around now. So you're not, a, a, you're not Scottish.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not Scottish by, by birth. My parents are English, even though I live most of my life in Scotland. My wife is Scottish. My first two children are Scottish. Uh, third one was born over here. So he's our first American citizen. Um, but oh, yeah, right. I can, I, I could probably pass myself off as a Scot, but, um, you know, if I was questioned under oath, I'd, I'd have to deny it.
0: Yes. Um, well, Dr. Ian Hamilton, who you probably know, um, and also a board member of the seminary, he he's fond of making sure that we all keep it very clear in our minds that he is a scholar. Oh, yes. Very important distinction. And never to confuse that ever um, with him. And I say that in fun, as I'm sure he does as well. Tell us a little bit about the, the maybe the background or maybe the genesis to... Um, your topic that you've been—I assume it was assigned, uh, maybe not. I don't know how at all the inner workings of how that works. But um, your topic is is an intriguing one: uh, Calvinism and the origin of sin. And, and as I commented to you off air, this, this the idea of the origin of sin is gives a lot of people, I think. Um, a reason for pause, and maybe not necessarily a, uh, that they should have to have that reason. But oftentimes, as they reflect back, especially into the Old Testament, how sin got here and and, and how that relates to God's providence, tell us maybe the background to this topic. Um, and, and you mentioned that it, it, there is some background. Yes. Well, I, w- I
1: was asked to speak on this topic, um, I believe, because uh, I had written an essay, an essay which is uh, is not not yet. Published, it's in a forthcoming volume, but it's it's available um, on my on my website for anyone who's is interested. But I, I was asked to contribute to an edited volume with the title Calvinism and the Problem of Evil, and mm-hmm. there's maybe a dozen contributors. Most of them are. Calvinists um, trained in in philosophy. It's a more philosophically oriented volume, and a few few contributors are not. But the the idea for the volume, the two ed, two guys who are editing it, um, they felt that Calvinism was underrepresented in Christian philosophy today. Um, you may be aware that that, that Christian philosophy is actually um, booming at the moment. There's been something of a renaissance of of conservative mm-hmm. Christians doing philosophy. Um, but when you uh, ask uh, most of these Christian philosophers about their view of human free will, about divine providence, very, very few of them uh, would would take a Calvinist position. And if you ask them, it's often because they think that it makes the problem of evil even harder than it already is. Now, everyone uh, has to deal with the problem of evil. Where did evil come from? How do we come to terms with it? And Christians, you know, this is a longstanding issue going right back to the Church Fathers and indeed the the Bible itself. Um, But there's this this sense among Christian philosophers that if you are a Calvinist uh, who believes that God doesn't merely foreknow things, but foreordains all things. Then you've got a real difficulty on your hands because God is God is as it were behind uh, and has control over the evil in the world that He doesn't uh, in other Christian uh, ways of thinking or ways of thinking that, that fall into mm-hmm. the Christian tradition. So the idea of this volume was to address that head-on and say, look, um, yes, Calvinists have some, you know, specific. Issues that they need to address, but at the same time, Calvinism—leaving aside, of course, the you know the, the exegetical case for Calvinism, which we all believe is solid—but um, but Calvinism, from a theological and philosophical perspective, provides a number of advantages over other ways of understanding human free will and divine providence. So that was the—that's the general volume. And I and I actually forget how this came about originally, um, but I decided that it would be interesting to write specifically on the question of the origin of sin, the first sin, um, not specifically the, the angelic first sin, but the first human sin, Adam's sin. To what degree uh, is that a uh, does that present challenges for Calvinists, and to what degree? does Calvinism actually give some satisfying answers to to the question of um, how God could foreordain sin while remaining holy? How could Adam be responsible for his sin if God foreordained the fall? Those sort of questions.
0: Mm, interesting. What, what, why does the problem of the origin of sin or, or the, the, the presence of evil cause so many Christians difficulty?
1: Well, I think uh... Often the the question arises from from outside. It's it's uh, it's an objection to the the biblical worldview. You believe in a God who is all powerful, all wise, all knowing, uh, and yet you also believe that there's evil in the world. So h- how do you reconcile the two? Why why would God allow any evil at all? And of course, traditionally Christians have given many responses to this, uh, but often they've fallen back on the idea of human free will. That, that, God has given human beings uh, free will, and he's not going to interfere with that, and by giving human beings free will, and and it's a certain strong conception of free will that they have in mind, um, that puts human choices beyond God's control, and somehow... Uh, it's not entirely clear to me how, but somehow uh, this this gets God off the hook uh, for for the presence of evil. It's it's a trade off. God wants to give people a certain kind of strong uh, degree of free will, but that means that he takes the risk that there's going to be sinful actions committed by them. Mm.
0: Interesting. Now you mentioned there's a number of advantages for the Calvinists, particularly to solve the solve or deal with the problem of evil or the origin of sin. And I guess before I even deal with that, <clears throat> I actually like to ask a more, <clears throat> well, dangerous, as it were, question: Can non-Calvinists philosophically actually answer the question?
1: The question being, what exactly,
0: what the origin of sin is, or the, or the presence of evil.
1: Well. Uh, in a sense uh, non-calvinists will answer it in the same general way that they will they will say that that the origin of sin lies not in god or any original deficiency with the creation but it lies in the creatures it, it lies in the free choices of the creatures now the hmm. difference of course is how you understand that that term free choice is that a free choice that is uh, what is technically technically called a libertarian free choice which is beyond god's control it's 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 undetermined by god in any way or is it a free choice that falls within the purview of god's providential control the calvinist is going to say the latter so so generally they all christians are going to at least all orthodox christians are going to ascribe uh the the origin of sin to to creaturely choices um but how they how they then Uh, reconcile that with with God's goodness and power, that's where the differences start to come out.
0: Sure. Now, you mentioned there's a number of advantages for the Calvinist, uh, at least from a philosophical perspective, but definitely framed within the theological and exegetical um, paradigm or system. That uh, helps explain these things. What would some of those advantages be?
1: Well, yeah. Leave, leaving aside what, what I would consider to be the, the exegetical advantages, that the, the Bible itself simply pre- presents you with a very, very strong view of divine providence—that all things are under God's control, including the choices of His creatures. Now, that's that's in my view that I mean that that's that's the decisive factor for mm. why mm-hmm. why I think why I'm a Calvinist and why I believe others should be. But in terms of um, uh, philosophical advantages. Well, uh, one of the things that the Calvinists can say is that there is there is no gratuitous evil in the universe. Uh, that any evil that does exist uh, exists entirely with with God's um, deliberate um, foreordaining uh, of that evil. That it is planned. It's part of a good, holy, and wise plan. So so there's no uh, there's no chaotic uh, indeterminate um, irrational Uh, evil in the sense that that it doesn't form part of an overall plan that God has for his creation. And that that can be a very satisfying uh, philosophical picture. It can also be very satisfying um, or at least it can be very helpful existentially uh, to know that any evils that we encounter, however painful they may be for us or for those we love, nonetheless they form part of a divine plan which is Overall, good and holy, and will bring about God's Mm. good purposes. That would be one uh, particular advantage.
0: Dr. Piper, um, in one of my systematic theology classes, and 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 I am certain, and I'm prophesying this, so I don't get (laughs) so I don't get the hammer lowered on me. But I'm certain I'm not going to get exactly the wording correct. Um, And if you know anything about Dr. Piper, he is very he's a stickler for good wording and logical order um, in statements, but I'm going to do the best I can. He made the comment, and I think this is germane to what you just said, that that it, in in God's decree, in his eternal purposes, he ordained that man would fall, and it is better for man that he did. Now, I, you know, I think about that on this side of the fall, and I think, well, oh, that doesn't seem so great to me, but what do you think, is that an accurate statement?
1: Yes, I, I would I would agree with it. I mean that goes back to to Augustine at least, and and to Aquinas as well. It's known as the uh, o, o Felix Culpa uh, to use the Latin phrase um, mm-hmm. O oh Blessed Fall or O Blessed Fault. Uh, and the idea is that that God, in ordaining a a world in which man does fall into sin, and yet that that man that um, his creatures are uh, redeemed through God himself, becoming incarnate, taking on human form, redeeming them, reconciling them to himself. Overall, that is a better world, uh, more glorifying to God, uh, more blessed to man who 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 uh, can spend eternity uh, knowing uh, God not just as Creator but as redeem, Redeemer, as blessed Redeemer. Overall, that is better than it, than a world in which there is no fall, but there's also no no incarnation and no atonement.
0: Mm, interesting. I remember when he said that in class, I was I was my ears perked up. You know, I coming from my very baptistic dispensational upbringing and um i certainly agree with him i i'm a full-fledged calvinist obviously and um and love everything it teaches but it was just the way it was worded i just thought man i you know here i am living on this side of the fall the effects of the fall i see the effects of the fall maybe a, a a new i may be a, a new creation uh, the spirit of god dwelling in me but the new edic effects of the fall and all hmm. these other aspects it just makes me pause maybe pause and think boy i you know i i want to believe that but there's, the, there's so much of the effects of the fall all around me on a daily yeah. basis that I just sometimes wonder, yeah. you know, in a practical sense, how that works itself out. And certainly, as you indicated, I think, um, as you indicated, that uh, God in his eternal purposes, when he planned and ordained that, um, knew that he would gain the most glory from it and it would be the best for the creature. And it, it But again, I, I, here I am living on this side of the fall. and. Trying to rationalize that right. in my mind, yeah. but I do agree. Uh, at the core of it, yeah. Now, when we talk about Calvinism, um, you know, it's a it's one of those terms that, depending on what uh, what climate you're in or what cultural background you're in or what circumstances you find yourself, that that that's one of those terms that tends to raise. Either eyebrows or or joy in the heart of people, depending on who you're talking to. Right. <laughs> um, what do we mean by Calvinism?
1: Right. Well, uh, th- there's a number of ways we could answer that question. Um, uh, people often associate Calvinism with the with the tulip acronym, the five five uh-huh. points yep. of Calvinism. That's certainly part of it. Um, but I would I would treat Calvinism more as a as a worldview it's a it's a theologically rich and i think biblically faithful world view that takes a particular view of of god of god's uh, relationship to his creation of the nature of man both uh, created and in his fallen state and it's a particular view of uh, god's salvation of fallen man one that emphasizes god's grace and god's glory from start to finish. So this would be the worldview that, as I say, I, I believe is represented in scripture, but has been um, codified, one might say, in the great reformed confession, such as the Westminster Confession of Faith.
0: Yeah, I, I think I read somewhere that Kelvin would be repulsed if he knew that the things that he wrote and discussed, um, borrowing heavily on Augustine, obviously, um would be named after him.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it is unfortunate, but you know, it's one of those terms that we've inherited and you, you have to work with what you get.
0: Yeah. You no, know, well, it's helps. It, it's also a helpful term because it helps identify mm-hmm. people, you know, where you are quickly, um, on these various things. And, um, so, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but mm. it tends to create in some, in some circles, as I've mentioned, it's pejorative. I mean, you say right. Cal- I'm a Calvinist, and right away you're yeah. you're, you're pigeonholed yeah. and um, without really fleshing that out. Now, you relate in your in your conference lecture, you're you're relating this philosophical worldview, this view of God, His relationship with man, and how that carries itself out through all of Scripture to the origin of sin. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm about the details and, um, you don't say the origin of evil. Uh, it's the origin of sin. Is there a difference? Uh, I would, the,
1: the, terms evil and sin are, are not synonymous, but in terms of the origin of evil and origin of sin, uh, I would say that they, they coincide in that, that all evil in, in the universe, in the creation traces back to sin. And, um, in, in our sphere, that traces back to the sin of Adam, but of course, Scripture indicates that there was there was evil, there was sin before the human fall because you have the, the serpent who is deliberately tempting Adam and Eve to fall. Mm. Um, so there, mm-hmm. there, you, know, if you're going to be pedantic, the first sin is, is an angelic sin. It's the fall of Satan. Um, but in our sphere, uh, it's the fall of Adam that is the one that's most immediate and, and has the, the most direct consequences for us. And that's what I'm addressing in this paper.
0: Now, what are you setting out to, well, I guess prove is probably the right word. What would you, what is your conference lecture going to attempt to prove?
1: Well, it's, it's going to be more defensive in orientation, uh, mm, and the way I set it up is this, that the, 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 the first sin, the first human sin, is, is a problem for all Christians in the sense that it raises some some very tricky questions. Why would a human being whom God created good, had no uh, flaw in him, no trace of evil in him, why, why would he sin? Why would he rebel? Mm, and that, that's, great that's question. I think, um, an issue that every orthodox Christian has to has to deal with who holds to you know the historicity of the fall, but many would say that Calvinism's uh, Calvinists have a particular problem uh, because they would say uh, on the Calvinist view, what's distinctive about the Calvinist view is that God God foreordains all things. He didn't just uh, foreknow that Adam would sin, uh, but he actually ordained it as part of a plan, and so. Uh, in a sense, it was inevitable. Even though even though Adam had free choice, we want to insist on that. Nonetheless, uh, God acted in such a way, and sometimes we want to use the the, the language of causation, but that can be a little tricky. Um, but but nonetheless, uh, we want to say that God decreed or ordained that Adam would sin, and that seems to make things uh, even even harder to accept, because some would say, well, that makes God the author of sin, that's a very common phrase uh, that people Mm -hmm. use when attacking the the Calvinist view. God is the author of sin. Now, they often don't define that term very well, and that's part of what I I get into, that you can't really uh, respond to that until somebody defines what they mean by that. But they would say, Mm -hmm. well, the the Calvinist view makes God the the author of sin, and also it it would take away uh, the responsibility from Adam. Uh, you You couldn't blame Adam for the fall, if if God had actually ordained that it would happen, and it was it was definitely going to happen. Uh, so these are the sort of particular questions that Calvinists need to address. And my my general approach is to say that yes, there are some distinctive issues that, that Calvinists need to think about. But the problems that Calvinists have to deal with are no greater in principle than the problems that alternative views need to address. Mm. And my point is, you can say, well, you Calvinists have got these challenges. Fine, but you 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 can't uh, properly evaluate the Calvinist view without comparing it fairly with the alternatives, um, because for all we know that the alternatives may have even greater problems or at least equal right. equal problems so we've got to be fair-handed in the way that we evaluate different theological perspectives on on god's involvement in that in that uh, first sin
0: yeah interesting yeah you, you mentioned the, the the issue of coordination and um the issue of god's decree what well, my background in growing up you know we would wrestle, as I think any Christian wrestles with these at some at some point in their Christian experience. They're going to wrestle with this question, and um, the, the the typical answer I would get um, from my pastors uh, as a child and a teenager would be that God allowed Adam to sin. Now, right. do you are you comfortable with that language?
1: I am, as long as it's properly qualified. You know, Calvin himself uses the the language of permission. Mm. Uh, but he's also careful to say that it's not a bare permission. That is to say we shouldn't think that the God had a hands-off. God God started things rolling and then said, okay, we're just going to let things run, and I'm, I'm not going to be involved in it anymore. We'll just see where it goes. Um, God's permission is an active permission because God is ordaining all things. God is sustaining all things at every moment. Um, and so the language of permission is, is useful in this regard, that it, that it uh, gives us a vocabulary for saying that God's relationship to good events and good actions is not the same as his relationship to evil events and evil Actions.
0: Can you can you give an example of how that would work itself out, and maybe in a biblical example?
1: Right. Well, we would say God God ordains uh, all things. Um, mm-hmm. So um, God God ordained not only the the crucifixion of Christ, mm-hmm. but He also ordained, uh, let us say, the the preaching of the Apostle Paul in Athens, which was a supremely good thing. Uh, uh-huh. Action on Paul's part. So then we have some evil actions. We have um, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, and the Jews all conspiring together to crucify Christ—a supremely wicked act. And then we have the faithful preaching of the gospel from the Apostle Paul—a supremely good act. And we want to say that God's relationship to the two is is the same in some respects, in that God God ordains both; they're both part of God's plan. But but uh, God actively, uh, we might say, actively empowers. Uh, and approves of what Paul is doing in the way that he does. He did not actively empower uh, and, and approve of what Herod Pontius Pilate and these other uh, wicked agents were doing. So there is. You're talking talking
0: about a negative and a a positive action, or yeah, 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 as it's displayed in God's decree. That's
1: right. Yes, or 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 not so much in God's decree, although there there is a there is a distinction in God's decree as well, and God's attitude towards decreeing good as well as decreeing evil, but also God's God's active involvement in. In the events, um, mm. we might say that uh, in in terms of his involvement in good events, uh, there's a very positive involvement. Um, for example, in the case of Paul, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is empowering Paul to to preach the gospel. Um, but whereas in in the case of evil acts, it's more of, more of a um, a withholding of mm. grace, a withholding of good that is allowing fallen human nature to take its course. But nonetheless, and here's the key point here, that this is all done within God's control. There's nothing that is happening without God's um, overarching ordaining and involvement in, in events.
0: Here's another phrase that I often hear in conversation uh, with friends that aren't necessarily sold on what you're arguing, and I would argue, um, as it pertains to the subject, is that um, they would say, well, God permitted to allow Adam to sin. How does that differ from just simply allowing it?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, if someone said that, I'd have to say, what do you mean by that? To, because to permit means to allow, as far as I can see, they're synonymous terms. So you could say God, right. God permitted it, God <laughs> allowed it. That's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, what difference does it yeah, make? Yeah, but my right. question is, well... How, how are we conceiving of that permission? Is it is it, a, to use that metaphor again, is it a hands-off permission, whereas, you know, maybe one of my children is rebellious and I say, okay, you go off and do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, I, I allow them to behave in a certain way. Or is it something more, more intimate and... Um, and I think transcendent in in the way that God is superintending the events that occur. Although he he is, as the as the confession puts it, he's never the approver of evil. Nonetheless, he does ordain evil for his greater good purposes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also I've often wrestled with that, even as a reformed seminary student and otherwise. Um, you know, I talk with friends, and and we get into this subject, I I don't always know what the practical benefits of the subject are. We're going to talk about that, of course, in a minute. Um, But I wonder, uh, you know, on this side of the fall, I get it. You know, man sins because we're sinful. It's not rocket science. I, I sin even as a as a as a new creation, as a born again believer, as having the Holy Spirit indwelling me, I still sin. I, you know, it happens, and uh, it's sad to say, but uh, and I get it. I know why, because I was my nature is is that way, and um, I'm having that old man, the new man, wrestling against one another, and all those things that the Apostle Paul talks about, Romans six and seven, and you name it. But I often have wrestled, and I think this is the core of your topic, perhaps, is that Adam did not have this nature. Right. And, and and i've and i i have never in my own mind been able to satisfactorily explain how he could have just wantonly if paul is correct and i think he is of course uh, that adam willfully and it, it clearly knew what he was doing and voluntarily sinned yeah and I've never been able to rationalize how he would go there.
1: Yeah, uh, that that I think is the supreme mystery. And uh, if folk coming to the conference are expecting me to provide a satisfying answer, to that I'm afraid they'll, they'll be disappointed. Uh, my 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 approach is really to say that that.
0: But still come. Oh yes, <laughs> we still come.
1: Yes, I I, w- I will definitely have some some interesting and useful things to say. Um, but but one of my points is that this is this is a profound mystery. It's not one that Scripture explains for us and so anything that we do say is largely uh, in the area of speculation. But uh, you know the way that you described it there uh, there's nothing there that a, that a non-Calvinist uh, wouldn't agree with as sure. well, because the non-Calvinist sure. believes that, that, that Adam didn't have a fallen nature. So uh, it, the, the question remains whether or, or how it could be that, that this, um, this unfallen human being could, could choose to rebel. Now, in the paper that I've written, I do make some, some suggestions, and they, they are somewhat speculative. Um, there are some f- philosophical um uh, traditions concerning what's called weakness of will. Weakness of will is a concept where uh, someone basically acts against their better judgment. They they know what the right thing is to do, but for for really non-rational reasons, uh, or there's there's sort of a mismatch between uh, their their understanding of what is good, their knowledge of good, and and their desires or their motivations, and that that may give us some. Philosophical categories and concepts that we could apply to the case of Adam and, and shed some light on it, but again, it's not something that, that, that Scripture explains for us, and so we are left in speculation. But the point I would want to emphasize is that the Calvinist isn't in any worse situation here, because uh, if if you hold to a, a libertarian view of free will, as uh, as Arminians do, then then the first sin becomes even less explicable. Sure. because right. it really does come come out of the blue. Uh, nothing, nothing in Adam's nature, nothing in Adam's character. There's this um, this, this free will choice that uh, is is not explained by any factors, either external or internal to Adam. It really becomes uh, a, a random, indeterminate event, and I certainly don't find that philosophically satisfying. So I don't see how uh, adopting a libertarian view of free will sheds any light on, on the mystery of Adam's sin. Mm,
0: very interesting. And, and in some sense, then, God was surprised if libertarian free will is the issue. Well, uh, that's
1: that's another issue, the question of how God could foreknow libertarian uh Uh, free will choices. Now, most Christians who hold to libertarian free will will say that God does foreknow, but the the, the difficulty is then explaining how God could actually foreknow. Now, the Calvinist doesn't have that problem because uh, he doesn't hold to a libertarian view of free will, and he says that God God ordains all things, so God foreknows because he ordains all things. Um, But if you're not a Calvinist, then you do have that additional Philosophical problem of reconciling God's foreknowledge—never mind foreordaining, just God's foreknowledge with human libertarian free will.
0: Yep, that's a great point. And and frankly, I you know I when when I first became a Calvinist, I I made this. I've I've actually said this on the air before. So those who've heard this story um, will under will have to forgive me for repeating myself, uh, which I do often, uh, by the way. But. Um, yeah. When I first became a Calvinist, uh, as most guys, uh, ladies, men, boys, whatever, uh, come into the Calvinistic understanding of soteriology especially, uh, they go into this – this other world mentality, it seems like that they're going to have to convince everybody that you need to be a Calvinist. I mean, it's just the greatest thing that ever happened. It's better than sliced bread. It's just wonderful. You just can't understand the Bible anymore unless you're a Calvinist. Right, you know, yeah. every, you see Calvinism and <laughs> everything, you know, you're watching a baseball yeah. game and you see Calvinism. Yeah. It's just, everywhere. they
1: call it the cage stage, don't
0: they? Yes. Yeah. And I was certainly one of those, uh, people who should have been locked up in a room for a few years and just, uh, been allowed to chill out and relax. Um, I was obnoxious and uh, probably caused a lot of people to run away from it in in the very opposite thing that what I was hoping to accomplish. And I remember making a comment to my mother, which I regret to this day, saying, and and I told her in a very matter-of-fact sort of way, that, Mom, you really can't appreciate your own salvation until you become a Calvinist. And it, you know, to this day, when I repeat that story, I'm horrified that I would actually make a comment like that to my dear mother, who loves the Lord, who is not a Calvinist, mm. and wrestles with these kinds of questions that you're talking about, and and it's in in maybe not fully understanding it. Fine, but I couldn't believe I said that. Even after I said it, I couldn't believe I said <laughs> it. And um, it, you know, to this day, when I think about that, I think what a horrible thing to say to your mother, who loves the Lord but doesn't understand and wrestles with some of the same questions you're dealing with and i'm wrestling with and have wrestled with even as a calvinist yeah. and um so there's a there's a you know there's a, a point at which this subject if we allow it and i think you would agree can really run amuck if we don't keep some kind of christian humility in view throughout Absolutely. and um and i guess that leads to that really uh, something i think we can we can close with um pretty quickly, is what are the practical benefits to this subject? I mean, is this just a heady theological subject that we try to get our mind around, or does this have practical benefits outworking our Christian life?
1: Well, of course it does, Uh, and I think Paul, in a number of his letters, applies this this doctrine of providence to uh, the doctrine of salvation, thinking particularly of Romans 8 and the doctrine of assurance, uh, that Christians can have assurance not only because God works all things uh, for the good of those who love him, uh, because he has uh, predestined us for salvation, because he's made a, a full and sufficient atonement uh, through the through the death of Christ, so these these doctrines, which of course have philosophical dimensions, and for some people it's important to get into that, but but uh, where mm. the rubber hits the road is really in terms of I think two areas. First, our assurance that that God can secure our salvation and mm. can bring us all the way home to glory, because he because that is His eternal purpose, and secondly, in in dealing with the problem of evil and suffering, both in our own lives and the lives of of others, uh, knowing that whatever we go through, it is it is not beyond God's control, and that God has to have an ultimate good purpose in it, even though he may not reveal that to us uh, at this point, but nonetheless that he can work all things for good. Um, i I would not want to have any other kind of perspective on suffering mm. and evil. It's never going to take, it's not going to take the sting out of it at the time, um, but oh. it is far more comforting to me to know that this is within God's control and part of his plan than that this is something that that God is saying, well, don't blame me for this. This was beyond my control. Or uh, this is just one of these uh, random uh, chaotic events in the universe that, that I really couldn't help, and it's because I gave people free will. So, again, don't come knocking on my door about it. Um, that is not, to me... Uh, existentially and pastorally satisfying. It it degrades God and when I'm dealing with evil and suffering, I want a big God. I don't want a small God. I want the biggest possible God that there could be and and that's the the God that we find in Scripture.
0: Yeah, I I think what you said is is well well stated. To me as as what you just said, though there's a a season of life, you know, this side of the fall, things aren't pleasant. You know, the suffering we see in the world, we Turn on the news, and we we watch these heinous things going on, and we're just we're, we're repulsed. We grieve. We don't like it. It's it's horrible. Mm. Um, but at the but at behind all that, and I think that's the, a way a safe way to put it. Behind all that, there's a God in the universe who is running His universe. He is controlling His universe. He is working all things for the good of His people, for the glory of His own name, and especially for His people, for His children, whom He loves and has bestowed incredible love upon. Though we go through difficulties, we go through trials, and w- we see the difficulties of the effects of the fall. Uh, we know that a loving God stands behind all of it and says, "I am bringing you through for your good, and and I know what I'm doing, and I'm and I'm right there with you. Yeah. And it's and it's not some um, deistic." type of approach, because to me, that would make me run away from Christianity. Exactly. If if deism was the rule of the universe, if God just wound it up or dropped Adam and Eve in the garden and said, okay, go knock yourself out, and they just— did this thing and god just had a hands-off approach to everything i would be like why do you want why would why would i want to worship you when you could have done XYZ and you did nothing exactly
1: yeah yeah that's the thing that the, those who criticize calvinism don't recognize that even even on their view their limited view of god god could still uh intervene and and um stop a lot of the, the atrocities that, that they uh, they mm-hmm. wrestle with. So there's, there's certainly a lack of consistency there. And, and the, the only alternative, really, to Calvinism, once you start pairing God down and, and making God more and more distant from events in the world, is, is frankly, is atheism. I don't know whether it was Warfield right. or Spurgeon, maybe both of them, but said, you know, when you look at the consistent o- options, the only alternative to Calvinism is atheism.
0: That's right, I I agree with you completely. And to me, as you said, it just the the comfort knowing whatever it is I'm going through, um, it it doesn't matter. Um, A loving God is 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 working and accomplishing His purposes in me for His glory and for my good. And you know, sometimes that's all I've got because I can't see the end of it. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I do know one thing: it will be for my good and His glory. And I, though I may not be able to p- get a piece of paper out in my analytical mind and, ex- and chart this thing out from beginning to end, um, that's when faith takes over and says, "Look, I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that He works for my good. I believe Romans eight twenty eight. I know it's probably the most overquoted verse in the Bible, but regardless, it's still true. Right. And uh, and I accept it, and I leave it at that. Mm. And you know, and and sometimes better and sometimes worse, but I leave it at that nonetheless. Well, Dr. Anderson, I, I told you we'd be about 30 minutes. We've probably gone a little longer. Um, I really look forward to the, the, the conference, especially this uh, this lecture that you're going to bring. I, I think it'll be a very edifying um, discussion and, and hopefully cause us all to think more deeply about who our God is. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we realize that God is immense, and he is so immeasurable, and his plans are so beyond our understanding that in his wisdom is beyond our even understanding that uh, to see how he orchestrates and works these things that, you know, for the sea for a season, for a very short, relatively short period of time, they don't look very good um, in some ways, but God brings us, as you said, carefully and, and, and clearly to glory to heaven, to commune with him for eternity. And he can accomplish that. Right. And he does. And so I look forward to, the discussion. I will, of course, be there, um, and I hope my listeners, uh, the listeners to this podcast, are considering coming to the coming to the conference. This is going to be uh, a really exciting uh, conference. Uh, we'll be dealing with these issues as well as others uh, in the lines of God's providence and how it works out yeah. in His creation. You mentioned earlier you have a website. Can you tell the listeners what that is?
1: Yes, it's um, it's Oh, okay. It's P R O. G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Uh, there's a story behind it, but that'll have to wait for another
0: time. E-R-O-G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Okay, Greek word. Yep. That's why I couldn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my Greek professor's not listening. And that's .com, you said? Yeah. Okay. I will include that for the listener's sake. If you're driving down the road right now, please do not try to whip out your cell phone and go to the website, but I will include that link on the confessingourhope.com website for those who are interested in, in further information about this topic and, and, and what he referenced earlier as some of the background material. And then off air, Dr. Anderson, you mentioned that you have a book coming out by Crossway. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that was uh, just came out last month. It's called watch your worldview. Uh, it's a, it's a little book that's designed for both, uh, christians and non-christians to get them to think about uh, what their what their worldview what a worldview is why why it's important to think about your worldview and what their worldview is and, and what are some of the challenges faced by that worldview and it, it it takes a interactive non-linear format like a choose your own adventure book so um i'm hoping that people will find it a useful resource for both discipleship and for outreach
0: outstanding and that's put out by crossway as I mentioned so I think if you just go to the crossway website probably Amazon probably wherever yeah and um, you know in today's world um, you know I often wonder how Barnes and Noble stays in business but that's a different subject for some other day but you know with Amazon out there they pretty much control everything so um, but you can get that at crossway or Amazon or, or wherever good books are sold sounds like a commercial. <laughs> But anyway, well, Dr. Anderson, it's been great. And I know you're very busy uh, laboring there at Charlotte. And um, I have a good friend of mine who's a student up there at at RTS as well. So um, you probably know him, but uh, I won't say his name on the air um, just for his own sake. (laughs) Probably wouldn't like it very much. Um, Very humble guy. but uh, I know you're busy uh, laboring up there in Charlotte, and hopefully this this storm that I mentioned in the beginning will maybe pass you guys by. It doesn't look like it's going to pass us, but uh, maybe it'll, it won't be as much of an issue for the Charlotte area. Well, but who knows? We'll see. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's all in God's providence. Exactly. It will be, it will be for our <laughs> ultimate good one way or another. That's right. Very good. Well, thank you for being on the program. If you can just hang in line just a second, let me close things up here with just a quick reminder for those who are interested in the conference, and um, the the title of the conference is God's Works of Providence, and so it's about God's providence. What a shock, um, if you were wondering. Um, It's on God's Works of Providence. And so we're going to be dealing with this issue, Calvinism and the Origin of Sin, as well as... Other matters, such as Dr. Benshaw, who is an uh, academic dean at Greenville Seminary, he's dealing with – his topic uh, is just a lot of noise, providence and the problem of evil – Very interesting title, actually, as well as other types of topics. We have men such as uh, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Shaw, Dr. Joel Beakey, and others, Dr. Piper, who will be speaking at this conference. So if you haven't signed up for the conference, I would ask you, recommend it, encourage you to do so. You can go to the gpts.edu website. There's a banner right there on the front page. You click on that, and all the information that you would like about the conference will be available. In addition to that, to actually being on site for the conference, if you're not able to be there for providential reasons, (laughs) there's a theme here, um, I'm going to be live blogging the conference uh, personally uh, throughout. So as the lecturers are giving their paper throughout the conference, I will be typing away, um, not transcribing, but I will be typing away little snippets of what they say. So if you want to follow that uh, on the website, you can do that at the confessingourhope.com website so take advantage of these different ways of getting information out there the internet's a great tool and i'm so glad we have it um it makes all of this stuff much much easier as it were and harder at times especially for those who don't have smartphones anyway so uh what's coming up on the program i'm not sure let's see uh Dr. Ben Shaw will be on um, actually in a few days um, to talk about his conference lecture topic. And I will be speaking with a Greenville Seminary graduate, Ben Miller, who will also be at the conference about his topic. And I want to say I have one more. Yes, Dr. Derek Thomas uh, will be on shortly after that to talk about his conference lecture. So I stay busy on this side to try to get the information to you. And hopefully it's helpful and edifying in your walk with our Lord. So until next time thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.